Icons. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. All right, well, I'm very excited about our next guest. Uh, Dr. Nathan Janeski is the Jacob and Rosalind Cohn Professor of Chemistry, Materials Science and Engineering, and Biomedical Engineering at Northwestern University. He's also the Associate Director for the International Institute for Nanotechnology. And in addition, he's a Sloan Research Fellow, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, a Fellow of the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering, and is the 2010 recipient of the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. That's a mouthful. And I'm going to be excited to talk to you about breaking down what some of those big words mean. You know, you're going to talk a little bit about chemistry and biomaterials and macrocycles and enzymes. And we're going to have a lot of fun talking sure. about those and try to, to have a better understanding of, uh, of what the hell those things mean. Right. Okay, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, in addition to the work that Nathan is pioneering in biomaterials and all things related to that, he's the scientific founder of Grow Biopharma, a really exciting company that I've had the pleasure of interacting with him through. And it's developing a revolutionary platform focused on material science and medicinal chemistry and it's discovering and developing a new class of biotherapeutics to treat significant unmet medical needs, especially in areas like neurodegenerative diseases. So the goal, as we know, in this podcast is to try to break down the story behind the individual, the innovator, the person that's bringing the idea across the long journey of going from idea all the way to the patient. And in this particular case, you know, really honored to have Nathan here. And as you can tell by his title and his experience and his area of research, he's, very, he's, a, he's a, a very technically savvy, but you'll also find that he's quite capable of articulating what that means to the layman as well. And so I hope during our interview, you'll get a chance to learn more about what this scientific founder um, is bringing to the world through Grow Biopharma and his research at Northwestern. So welcome to the show, Nathan. Thank you very much, John. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I uh, wonder if you would mind just telling us a little bit about your story, a little bit about your journey to present day, and then we'll get a chance to kind of weave alongside of that some of your areas of interest and then what brought you to starting Grow Biopharma as well. But first, just talk about your your background and, and maybe, you know, as a as a seed to the conversation would be, as a kid, did you dream about doing what you're doing right now? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, you know, as a kid was, I, I guess, good enough at science that you know, we got told you had to go to medical school, right? So if you could write well, you had to go to law school. If you were good at science, you had to go to medical school. So I, I obeyed that sort of rule at the beginning. And so down that pathway, I'd started a science degree at the University of Adelaide uh, in Australia and really had a view to, okay, get good enough grades that they'll let me into med school. And simultaneously, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do something interesting, while I'm taking classes or something on the side. And so I joined a lot of different research labs. And so I joined I think a neuroscience lab. I did some work over the summertime in a, in a med school, more, more like translational research type lab, bio, very bio. And then I had the opportunity to work with one of the chemistry professors as an undergrad researcher. This is before I'd sort of thought of this as a, as a pathway. And we started you know, in the lab making molecules. 
So I didn't really, you know, I knew what you know as a kid who's just learned chemistry. So I here's the lab, make a, make a molecule. And I think one of the most amazing experiences, and I'd heard someone else recently say this, and I had exactly the same experience of making something that nobody really cares about necessarily, but it was the first time it had ever been made. Hmm. And not having that much experience with it, but knowing that, oh, this is the first time anyone's taken you know, making this molecule, characterize this molecule, something about that, that I realized that this could be, you know, a creative pursuit and not that maybe medical school couldn't be, but that this is really what I wanted to do. And I remember I told my parents, you know, I want to go to do my PhD instead of med school. And I think dad had something to say about how little money I would make doing that. (laughs) Um, But that I would pursue it in the US. And this sort of evolved over time that in working with my undergraduate research advisor who had done his some of his training in Canada. And he said, look, if you're going to do it, really do it. Go to the US. There's more funding. There's entrepreneurial opportunities. But there's there's also more basic science funding so too. that was the underpinnings then for you coming to the US. That's right. Was the research took you yeah, here. 100%. Yeah. And I, I very much thought if I could you know, contribute creatively to something, I, I felt like I could do that in chemistry. In other areas, maybe not. But I thought that was a contribution that I could spend my life at in academic research and and potentially, you know, at the time I sort of thought, well, maybe, you know, if there's some value to this, there'd be value, not just academic and basic science value, but maybe value in the, in a, in the real marketplace, in the real world, right. To go back and impact maybe human health. So I sort of still had that inside me where I wanted to make some difference like that. And that was the pathway that led to the U.S., yeah. That's that's very interesting. And it's it's uh, cool to hear you talk about almost the marriage of the art and the science. So much of, yeah. uh, you know, watching your face light up as you talk about creation and creative and doing something for the first time. And it'll be interesting to get into the, your experience also as a founding scientist at Grow Biopharma and how that has maybe scratched a little bit of a that itch around creativity yeah. and whether you view that as more art than science as well. But before before we go there, I'd like to maybe just step back and if you could offer just a brief primer to our listeners around some of the terminology that we that we've thrown out here: nanotechnology, mm-hmm. material science, medicinal chemistry. If you can talk a little bit about what those are and then how we apply those fields towards medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, chemistry, of course, is this huge field that's grown up over the last 100, 200 years. You know, there's a Nobel Prize in chemistry. There's a Nobel Prize in, in not everything, right? Then in a few fields and chemistry is one of them. So it's a, one of these traditional fields. It's become incredibly cross-cutting and it, you know, includes medicinal chemistry, which is the study of how molecules can be used to change the course of disease, right? Change the trajectory of disease. And in fact, most of the drugs we've had in our lives of antibiotics, for example, are all small molecules and depend on traditional kind of thinking about chemistry. Material science is a relatively new field that combines a whole lot of other fields. So many material scientists, for example, come from physics backgrounds. Others come from more chemistry backgrounds, um, but they're multidisciplinary kind of research programs. And very often that science also sits within engineering uh, schools. And so you're talking about people who've studied, you know, metallurgy and ceramics. And increasingly, uh, people who are interested in what we call soft materials, so polymers, uh, plastics, things that are moldable. And that's how we sort of use the word soft matter to define also biomaterials. So you imagine um, 
fibers that are made by natural systems. For example, I mean, cotton would be one of those, a natural fiber that's a moldable fabric that's like a soft matter. So cotton fibers, uh, silk from spiders or from uh, silkworms, that whole class of material that can have incredible properties and yet be flexible. I mean, spiders spin webs, for example, that is the classic biomaterial, right? It's a, it's part, it's a protein, so it's made like proteins, any of our other proteins, and we could talk a bit more about proteins, but it's also a material. It's an unusual thing in that it's excreted, um, but these organisms make materials that are tougher than Kevlar, for example. We don't know how to produce them in industrial scales, and that's a whole area of research, but all of that polyethylene, polypropylene that are used in packaging is all within that material science type scaffold. Um, or, or field, if you like. So incredibly multidisciplinary. One of the best programs in the in the world is at Northwestern. That was one of the draws uh, for me to come here. Um, but it is a collection of different skill sets. And the idea of interfacing that kind of science, polymer science, the science of plastics and, you know, moldable, you know, chairs and devices that you interact with all, all the time, with maybe making solutions for biology and medicine. So instead of medicinal chemistry, can we use material science to influence and change the trajectory of disease? This is really the question that we ask. Um, that's sort of the area of, that we're interested in. And it doesn't just relate to biomaterials, but maybe to uh, studying cells in a way that is maybe different from how other people have looked at it in the past. And there are sort of collections of people interested in this interface then between, you know, when molecules become materials or when cells become material-like. If you think of it, tissues are made up of cells and then things like collagen and connective tissue. Tissues in our bodies are inherently multifunctional. They're made up of small molecules and large molecules and nucleic, you know, DNA and proteins and everything else combined together into a composite material of sort of similar to some of the more complex systems we're used to looking at, um, but far beyond it, of course, because they're programmed biological entities. Well, know? and as you said, what drew you to the U.S. was the research, and I presume that landed you at Northwestern, and then you studied under Dr. Chad Merkin, correct? I and did. Maybe right. you could talk a little bit about nanotech, how that fits into mm -hmm this milieu of what you just described, and also just people that you're drawn to and inspired by that have marked your journey to kind of pursue this pathway as well. Yeah, so that's right. So I'd, I'd, at the same time I'm thinking I'll go do my PhD in the US, um, right out, Chad Merkin had been, you know, his lab was about 10 years old at that point, and they were doing uh, work that was a bit unusual. They were taking inorganic materials, so these are inert metals and combining them with nucleic acids. He's built a whole lot of technologies around that, including some drug delivery systems, and really was some of the original, really really functional nanomaterials that we would describe as sort of within the field of nanotechnology. And that is matter that's essentially on the order of nanometers. So these are billionths of meters. So very small objects from the standpoint of human beings who are used to looking at things on the meter length scale to billion times smaller than us. And why does it help to be small? So, yeah, on the one hand, it helps to be small. On the other hand, they're quite large for chemists. So it's, it's chemistry where we've got a lot of control over molecular structure. But as you go beyond that to nanoscale structures, which are quite large from a chemistry perspective, they become uh, unusual. So they get all kinds of unusual properties for the fact that they're like very large, complex molecular systems. And also for the, them being very small. 
So actually gold particles are a really interesting example of this. And they show up actually in stained glass windows. So human beings were working with these kinds of materials for long periods of time. At a certain size, gold stops looking shiny and gold like metal and starts looking like a red pigment. And this has to do with the way that light interacts with matter at different length scales. And so it can be used in, and is used in red stained glass window. Well, and so breaking down part of what you're saying too is that those unusual shapes, yeah. recapitulation mm-hmm. of what you just said. Yeah, so you could take a material that, like I was saying, like plastic that you would see in plastic bottles. It has one kind of property because of its size. And as you shrink those polymer, the polymer chains that make up a plastic bottle down, they take up different kinds of properties. Absolutely. And it happens in all kinds of form of matter. And that sort of sweet spot, if you like, where nanometers, you know, viruses, for example, are nano objects, they're sort of nature's nanotechnology. Uh, cells are more like tens of microns, you know, on the order of 10 microns. So you're working with materials now that are at the same length scale. They're at the same size as some of the more complicated biological machines. And biology is essentially being, it's the original, we'd say it's one of our inspirations in chemistry, but it's also one of the original sort of nanotechnologists. And so if you want to try to manipulate the way viruses interact with cells or complex machinery inside cells, then if you can make nanometers, sort of um, a- apples and apples. So they're, they're sort of matched in size and matched in function. So you're operating uh, with a set of materials that are matched to have some type of uh, interaction that could create a wanted outcome, a biological activity, for example, with this newly shaped material. No. And I'm making this up. I'm not sure if I'm saying the right thing here, but you've got these newly formed materials that are potentially doing something than you could ever do before using conventional chemistry. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you see it, it's true in, and not just in medicine, but in other fields where control, and I think you're nailing it right there because it's about controlling matter that's hundreds of bonds, hundreds of chemical bonds, or you're taking materials and machining it down to smaller and smaller objects. The sort of top-down approach to make, say, very, very dense computer chips is an approach in nano-patterning that gets you to very high-density devices. In chemistry, we typically go the other way. So we take small components and build them up in a predictable way Mm. to get a material with very dense, say, display of information. DNA is the same way. DNA is a very large polymer of, uh, and in a specific sequence, as we know, right, um, that has a code. And it's encoded, it's encoded at the molecular level, but it's actually a very large structure that build up our individual chromosomes. So nature's already doing this sort of bottom-up approach to control over density information at the nanoscale. And so in a sense, humans have learned enough about chemistry to be able to copy some of those Trying to functions. mimic nature in a sense. Yeah, try yeah. to copy a little bit about, yeah, because we can see it for ourselves. As, as soon as you see the structure of those molecules, you know, in the 1950s when they solved those structure, they, it was immediately obvious that was the information-containing molecule. And how do we then go about using synthetic chemistry to approach the same level of complexity? And, and it's all about information, recognition, information, recognition, and transfer, editing, you know, genes are edited to avoid malfunction, for example. So can medicine play that same game? And this is where you get into sort of CRISPR and the famous methods for trying to edit nucleic acids or modulate, in other words, how information is stored at the nanoscale using man-made technologies. Yeah, no, very, very cool. And so if we follow on and uh, just walking through your your journey, so you 
you uh, successfully completed your PhD program at Northwestern. Um, you chose the path to move downstream and become a professor, correct? Yes. Uh, where, where did you go after that? And what was the kind of next phase of your career? And were you able to kind of continue to marry this curiosity around the matching of the art and the science through, yeah. that, through that role? Yeah. So I had finished my PhD. We, we did something kind of that I think was a, well, I, I thought it was an interesting project and it was a little weird. We, we used completely artificial method to mimic how proteins function, a specific class of protein. And I got interested when I finished my PhD, as, as I said, I was interested in going to academia. And so I reached out to a chemical biology lab at the Scripps Research Institute uh, uh, in La Jolla, in California, uh, Reza Gadiri, who I then did my postdoc with. And so typically before you become a professor, you have to go do a postdoc. Some people skip that bit. I didn't. And went instead into a completely different field. So he's a particularly creative guy and, and always really valued that really highly. And we got along very well, I think, because of that synergy. It was almost like it's not worth doing unless it's really creative and original. I think, I think we did something relatively interesting and new. But what it gave me was a, a different kind of skill set and much more biologically focused. You know, Northwestern is like this material science, you know, inorganic chemistry kind of powerhouse. And it was particularly then. It's generalized a bit more now. Scripps has always been their chemical biology powerhouse right. and really on the biology side. And you were sort of surrounded by this. The speakers who would come and speak were a completely different animal than you got at Northwestern sure. at that time. Yeah. And the graduate, I was a postdoc. So the graduate students were all biologists in background or immunologists. And you'd go to these you know, your collaborators then were less, in, they were chemists, but less interested in sort of hardcore chemistry and catalysis yeah. and more in how do we fix biological problems or probe biology using chemistry. So much around the application. Right? Yeah, I mean, application and particularly in biology. Yeah. Not in other kinds of materials. Right, right. yeah. And so that sort of thought, well, how do I, okay. And 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 some of it really pretty hardcore, some of the, some of the most interesting basic science advances that have led to things like humanized antibodies and those kinds of efforts originated in those kinds of laboratories. So initial, you know, basic science questions that were becoming, and, you know, a lot of those people there were spinning out companies, Northwestern subsequently is as well. So those two environments were very entrepreneurially driven, but down completely different types of paths. And so I began to think as a postdoc, and I was there for a couple of years, about two and a half years, that when I start my own lab, Maybe I could operate somewhere between these two worlds, right? Chemical biology and materials. And how would I build my own research lab? Sort of cheating in a way, right? Work for two completely different fields so that somewhere in the middle, you'll be original by default, right? <laughs> right? Without having to think too hard about it, maybe. But, yeah. but that's sort of where how we started our lab was sort of between two worlds yeah. to some extent. Yeah, no, very, very interesting. In, in many ways, kind of utilizing novel tools to you know, paint on a new canvas in a way, right? Yeah, I think that's how, that's exact. Actually, I've used that expression before with my students who are looking at postdoc, you know, postdoc position is exactly that. Like, you know, what, what is your canvas going to look like you know, if you want to contribute something in academia, it's going to have to be new. I mean, that's what that kind of research is for. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully impactful, but certainly new. And so I think that's absolutely right. I've used that exact expression. I do, I do think it is, it is a canvas for doing something. Sometimes we'll write manuscripts that are purely just that. This is a new thing that we thought up 
Maybe a bunch of people read it and say, no, Nathan, you're wrong. You know, somebody did this in 1972. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Uh, but at least we strive for that. Yeah. No. So originality and, and then try to have some impact. Truly really creative. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, then following on from there, you pursued the academic path. So you did your postdoc. You had this very diverse experience, exposure to just really hardcore biology and the application of what you were doing your PhD around on the material science side of things and how to make these new, very complicated structures, but then applying them to biology. Yeah. Then what brought you forward thereafter and what happened next? So I went, yeah, they somehow I got a job in, <laughs> in academia. I had, you know, it's a hell of a process to do that. And it um, seems awfully hard. I mean, it's you, just, I really, it's, it's just watching that process from afar mm-hmm. and just seeing the people that come through it and what they're exposed to just seems extraordinarily difficult. It's tough. And I think it's very competitive. You know, it, my proposals, I don't think were very good. And I can look at them now and think, man, I'm again, I'm glad that they gave me a shot because you very, I think when you're, at least for me, you know, you come out of a, a that diverse experience, but I didn't know exactly where this would fit. I, I, I knew that we wanted to do something again at that interface, as that we've been describing, nanoscience, materials, and biology. And maybe some of it was basic science. Some of it might have an impact on, say, detection. And you think of things like early disease detection or in vivo probes like contrast agents for MRI or something. So there's definitely some applications. But yeah, so I, I very much, very competitive, You you know, original research proposals. And I flew around the country and lucky enough to get an offer at UC San Diego. And decided to start my career there. And uh, just a fantastic environment. The chemistry and biochemistry department there is very diverse. If you look at the research, the kind of research going on, there are people in the, because it's a chemistry and biochemistry group, there were lots of students too who came in at that interface of biology and chemistry. The medical school is a big powerhouse of research and very open-armed about, hey, come join our uh, you know, weekly discussions on imaging. Roger Chen was there, for example, at the time and had a lot of interactions with him and his bigger team. You know, he had surgeons and people like that working for him or working with him, I should say, on different problems. And and so there was an amazing kind of opportunity to interact with in, in ways that I hadn't before. Because also you're a professor, so they invite you to these things. Well, so much um, innovation does seem to happen, though, at that nexus, that multidisciplinary collaboration seems to be really the area where new things are arising from and where truly new innovation comes from, the interface between all these different yep. fields, it seems to me. And then the ability to kind of interact with, through some of those seminars that you're a part of or got to attend as a professor, the yep. ability to kind of see what was going on in different fields and probably always being at the head of the curve as well. Yeah, I think I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I would, for example, the cancer center, at Moore's Cancer Center at UC San Diego, would have a lunchtime seminar series where, you know, doctors in white coats would walk up with their beepers on and you'd give a talk and there's, it would be a big open area, brown brown bag, students would walk by, patients could come and sit down. Hmm. So they'd come over from the hospital side and sit there in the hallway. They probably still, I'm guessing they still do this in the commons there. And, you know, after your talk, a pancreatic, you know, cancer doctor would walk up and say, you know, I thought what you said was interesting, but you've kind of missed the mark. You should be focused on this aspect of the disease. And those become collaborations. Mm. Almost sounds like an investor presentation. I think you, you, I think fast so. forwarding when you're raising money, That's you've got exactly to talk to right. an audience, and that, that totally audience may have a different opinion of what you have, 100%. but you may learn from that. 100. percent So that I think iterative process, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and if you if you don't get out there and do that and test it, right, 
you're going to sit there and believe that you're always right. And for how long is that going to last? Right. So you, you know, you either kind of test it ahead of time or you try to write papers and you can't get funding and you you know, you've got to get out there and give talks to me that that's, and those kinds of sessions in the university setting where you are, it's your home. They end up not as competitive things where somebody takes those ideas and competes with you, but collaborative opportunities. I think that's actually true in the investor setting too, because you are looking more than I ever realized you're looking for collaborators, right? It's not like you're looking for some, they don't pay for something and walk away. Right. These are collaborations that should go on for Like-minded many Like-minded people that believe yeah. in the idea. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but, but some some version of that idea. It may not be the exact idea you came to that person with. Again, on the research side, whether you're proposing that pitch to the NIH or again, I think also on the investor side as well. So it's interesting to hear you talk. That's what popped into my mind is just, I think that sounds pretty reminiscent of, you know, going and doing a pitch to, to a VC. Actually, I think it's it's interesting. We we get grants rejected all the time. We write a lot of grants. We get them rejected. Uh, We get papers that get sent back for revision or full out rejected. And so you deal with that kind of thing all the time. But as a scientist, you, you know, your initial reaction is these guys are wrong. The review is wrong. I'm this paper is perfect. And then you read it the next day and you think, you know, they're dead right. Uh, I'm going to make this better. Yeah. And, and you don't just rebound and try again blindly. You mm. adapt. Right. right? And, and may, in many cases, it sends you off in a, in a new, more informed direction. Right. So. So, I mean, it seems to me you had tremendous early experience as part of the faculty in San Diego. What brought you back to Northwestern and kind of what brought you to present day? And then then I want to dive into Grove Biopharma and yep. talk about how you've brought, you know, all these experiences in many ways and you're bringing it forward into the form of a company. I want to get into that in just a few minutes. But what brought you back to Northwestern and what are some of the features of the research you're involved in there now that are kind of uh, the, ne- the next frontier for you? Yeah. So, you know, having been a graduate student at Northwestern, uh, at, you know, then I went to California, uh, you know, being an Australian from the southern part of Australia, especially the weather's like identical to San Diego. And uh, I didn't think we'd have to leave, right? This is one of the best places to live on earth. And everybody will tell you that. And UCSD was fantastic. Very supportive. Lots of good, friend, good friends. I'm still an adjunct professor there. So there wasn't this sort of big negative push. I, for many years, you know, one of the things I'd said to my wife was if Northwestern never came knocking, I'd probably have to go. And the upside of doing it is is huge. The university at the time when I graduated was fantastic. And now it's even better in terms of the, the chemistry program, but also the material science and engineering program, the biomedical engineering program that I'm also a part of. So the opportunity was presented to be a member of all those programs, which means all of those colleagues, all of the resources that go with that, which is the facilities, characterization facility. We talked about nanoscience. It's one of the best nanoscience characterization places in the world. And that is half the battle. Making things is one half. The other half is figuring out what you made. And there's almost nowhere in the world world better than Northwestern and leveraging Argonne and the other things going on in Chicago. So we certainly, I sometimes joke we did it for the weather, but of course- that may not be the it's case. It's a change in seasons, right? It's a change in season, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this sort of came up. Hey, look, if, if you're interested, come out over the summer. This was a few years ago now um, and have a look. And I saw it then. I'd been back and forth a few times, but I saw it as a place where I could do something really special. I was turning 40 and I thought, okay, I've done 10 years at UCSD. 
let's 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 have a bit of a change and jumped into it. I mean, we we basically made the decision to move and six months later we my almost my whole lab had moved as well and uh set up shop and got going and it yeah, it was fantastic. It's been really good. Well, and it seems to me that, you know, early on in this conversation, you talked almost about that being a, a fantasy world where you could live in, in between all these worlds. Yeah. And yeah. looking at it from my perspective, it seems like that is the world. Like you're you're there. You're you're yeah. in a spot where you could only have imagined getting into that particular interface where all those things are coming together. Yeah, that is, is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And it means it's not just that as a professor or as a, you know, that you sit there and you know, teach in those different departments and we have fantastic colleagues and all the symposia and everything else. But the best part of it is all the graduate students. Hmm. So you've got biomedical engineering students who have MD, PhDs. They have bio, biochemistry backgrounds and biology backgrounds. And you've got you know, people with physics backgrounds and chemistry backgrounds joining a group. So the diversity of projects you can do at the level you want to do them, and then the type of trajectory you can have because you're working with these amazing young scientists who come in with more hungry than I was for creative experience. And they create again, like even a, a totally new opportunity for us. So the, yeah, the, it was definitely around those types of things. And last, I've been there now uh, almost four years. So it's been, I'm very glad we did it. Time flies. Time flies. I can't believe it's been four And years. it's great to be in the city. I yeah. mean, honestly, I mean, you're a big fan of the city. I, I, We are too, and always have been. I met my wife here. So we had a lot of friends here too. So it wasn't that we were moving to a random city somewhere. Um, and I think that's a big part of it when you think of your career. So when you thought about starting a company, what were the early elements of the impetus for moving in that direction? So you, you've you really have established tremendous success with regards to your academic laboratory. You're pioneering and pushing in new areas of science. You're answering key questions. And again, as we've talked about, really at this very unique interface where a lot of science is moving very quickly into these whole fields that you've talked about, where you're kind of moving material science into its application, where you talked about gene editing, cell therapy, and synthetic biology, all mm-hmm. these terms that get thrown around right now that are that are kind of being brought to the forefront, given what's happened through the pandemic, and mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. know about what mRNA is and yeah. drug delivery, and all, you're right at the middle of all that stuff. So, right. what brought you to start a company, and why do you feel did you need to start a company to take your idea forward? Yeah, so you know we'd done a few things over the years where we had uh, collaborations with an industrial collaborations, and uh, some of which you know spawned plenty of IP and. So I'd had it in my mind that there was a point in time, and I'd seen it happen with some other projects, where the project, it's almost like we'd, dis, we'd made the basic science discovery. Maybe we'd, we'd, we'd filed IP, of course, and all of that process. But the, the sort of academic pursuit of that technology had sort of ended in a sense that we were no longer going to be asking this sort of basic science question. And those kind of became maybe licensing opportunities or some other things. And they, they, were, they weren't so interesting really as a company. So what does he mean by licensing? In life sciences, many of the most exciting advances that we see occurring 
come off of university campuses, because it's at universities that long-term research and development is typically funded by government and other nonprofits. And so once that research emerges, in order to make it to the market, universities look to license a technology to make it available either to a startup or an established company. In a startup's case, they're going to license in patent or other types of intellectual property and create a whole new company around it. In an established company, they're going to license in a patent or another piece of technology and supplement the markets that they already have or the existing products that they already provide. But but, but definitely I could see that idea, right? That the, the level of innovation that we could bring in a, in a in an academic setting was over. And one example that's classic is where, you know, big toxicity studies, pharmacological type studies of, of small molecule drugs become such a huge scale um, in terms of the animal studies required and the kinds of effort that they deserve to be spun out. They deserve to be developed by a bigger company even. With this was quite different. This was a technology that we had been developing with basic research grants actually beginning with the DOD. So we had some Air Force money early on. We were interested in making sensors. And we had some, you know, really a serendipitous discovery around a particular approach we were taking to, to making those materials. We had some NIH-funded programs that we could then bring in and leverage a bit to develop the materials. So we were getting really basic science grants, some transformative research type awards from NIH, which were really innovative grants to support some new directions we were taking. And then within those materials, we discovered this the type of technology that has become the, the core of Grove. That was about the time I was moving or deciding to move to Northwestern. That project had sort of just got going in 2014, 15. We, we decided to move end of 16. And you were saying earlier about, you know, were there new opportunities when you move? Well, one of the things I thought was when I moved the group, we'll, we'll focus a lot of our effort on building out this technology and see, see, if it, see if our initial serendipity has anything behind it. And as we did that, we realized that we had potentially a really interesting scalable approach that would make use of some advanced polymer chemistry we developed in the lab, but to mimic proteins. So mimic their function, couple together with proteins, change their trajectory. So like I was saying with medicinal chemistry, the traditional sort of one of the definitions would be molecules that change the trajectory of disease. Could we do that, but with a polymer that mimics proteins, which is kind of out there a little bit. And as we investigated that and we spent some time doing that, we began talking to folks and I'd I'd known our, our CEO now, uh, Jeff Jewick, for some time, and Paul Burton, who's our other co-founder. And we were talking about bouncing ideas. Uh, we were bouncing around ideas, some that we had developed uh, together collaboratively uh, previously and some new ones. And I, think, I can't remember exactly. It was many conversations. You know, you have many iterations of this conversation. Mm. And at one, one of these calls, I think we sort of said, well, this is the one. Mm -hmm. Let's put this in the middle of, of a company. And I think that that went along with this conversation of why a company, why not something else? And I think it had got to the point where we wanted to build a science company that could focus on that for translation, for the mission of uh, drug or therapeutic development. So I sort of say to my students too, I think it's the way you switch from, for me, just having just done this, maybe I'm wrong, but it's almost like our lab is meant to be a discovery machine at the university, but the company can be a development machine. Mm -hmm and hire people and go through regulatory and quality control and all the things that make academics squirm. And, you know, I don't want to do any of those things. 
uh, what it takes to make a real innovation in the market, right? It's like there's a lot of basic science in the iPhone, but the innovation was its design and implementation in the market. And I think the opportunity to do that, to transition it, to be a part of that, to give it real life, I think, is what was attractive to me. It seems like you were influenced, though, by some of the places that you'd been a part of. You know, you talked a little bit about your time in San Diego in particular, where it almost seems like you were immersed in a very entrepreneurial environment. Maybe you had some earlier familiarity with what others had done before you. Is that is that true? Like, I to what extent so, yeah. was this move in this direction, which is a new direction, it's an, it's it's emanating from your your path and your trajectory, and in many ways a natural extension, but it, but it is different. Were yeah. there any key influencers along the way that kind of got you to say, I'm going to give that a try? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that's right. I think there was a observation that, so my PhD advisor, who you mentioned earlier, Chad Merkin, is a serial entrepreneur and academic and has always coupled those two things together in a really, I think, really productive way. Spun out companies, in other words, from his lab and is quite prolific in that. So I was obviously very well aware of that. I'd also seen huge impacts that can be had by commercial, you know, spinning out and commercializing drugs or licensing them. Lyrica is one of the famous examples out of Northwestern of where that occurred to great effect um, in terms of influencing. Yeah. So this is the uh, the, the chemistry out of Rick Silverman's right. lab that ultimately led to a, a product that's been very impactful in pain management, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, so you see that, that, and that's a great example of if it just stays in a lab and in a notebook or even in the published literature. Right. Yeah. So who, who does it help? Yeah. yeah. So that impact, you're, mo- you're driven by that impact. A hundred percent. And, and I think, I think the, I think the company can be really focused on it too. And it can do that. Our lab's very multidisciplinary. We have lots of other projects and I could see how when these guys had spun companies out or licensed technologies, and there are many, many others like it that you can see examples of that the, that they can, well, they can switch. They can of course uh, change tools and, and license something else and companies go in all kinds of directions. But I think there's an opportunity to really focus on that and take it from almost like prototype to a production scale car. You know, you think of the difference between inventing a combustion engine and, and, you know, the Model T. Yeah. And to see something, I think, go like that. And I'd seen that happen with others. And I thought, I, I guess that was underlining it. I, had, I hadn't, hadn't thought of that recently, but I think you're absolutely right. And when you moved in that direction, maybe you can describe some of the feelings you had. Were you 100% confident that this was the right move to make? Or was there some uneasiness in that you were taking a risk and moving in a in a new direction. And I'm not trying to lead the witness here, but I'm just <laughs> curious about how did you feel and how did how did the people that you uh, you know interact with on a daily basis, your family, for example, feel about your your move in this direction? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you do get you know you make this decision to, to leap, and it involves so many different components that you. And people say this about other kinds of businesses, a small business, they open an ice cream shop or whatever it is. There's a lot of problem solving, right? So you're putting out fires or you're, we got, we got to license this from Northwestern. I got to file that document. There's a lot of mechanical things. Right. It's like adding another kind of, I mean, you're essentially become a consultant for the business or, you know, you, there's a lot of effort involved. Yeah. So you are kind of caught up in it enough that it's pretty, I would say the one thing that I still feel is a huge amount of excitement. And I feel very privileged to be able to do it. I mean, to have folks that I mentioned as co-founders 
interested enough to spend their time. And I think very early on, we discussed this idea that, you know, you can, you can compensate people if you like, or you can try to with money, but time you never get back. Yeah. And there's lots of other things those guys could have gone and done, Right. but they chose to do this. And I'm very humbled by that, proud of that. I'm yeah. excited by it. And then the other part is the stress that, you know, we, we would really love to deliver it. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think all those real. things are mixed. And, and I think there's, yeah, with friends and family, I think, you know, some of them also invested. And so, you know, I hope that we deliver on that, of course, for them financially, but I think they, they also understand, people understand the, the risk. Yeah, they believe in the mission. Yeah. You understand the risk. Yeah. Understand the upside. Um, you, you, you're and taking, believe in. Every, every, the, the whole nature of a biotech company is every step of the way toward getting a product, you know, to the clinic. That Lyrica story is a story of de-risking at every event. Yeah. It's yeah. running experiments. It's taking it through the early preclinical development. It's getting into humans, but that's a long journey involves a lot of scientific, clinical, regulatory risk, financial risk that goes alongside of that. It's a very exciting time. Yeah. Can you just, in just a brief high level, describe how would you characterize Grove's platform and its first application? I described it when I introduced you, but what's your kind of just brief overview of what the company is doing and what the main goal of the company is, especially in the course of the next 18 to 24 months, let's say. Yeah, so the the technology we have is what we would describe as a platform technology in that it's a, as we sort of said, a, a chemistry, a materials approach, and it, and what I what we call it as a proteomimetic. So what does that mean? It's a it's a material, it's a completely man-made material that mimics proteins. Proteins are the machines of our cells. They're enzymes that drive completely normal processes. They're proteins that drive normal processes like cell division, but they also can go wrong and cause disease. Some of the, as you mentioned, incurable diseases, some of the worst diseases we have and the ones for which we have almost no drugs are diseases of protein regulation or dysregulation. And so one of the primary targets on day one is a neurodegenerative disease relevant target that's well-established. It's known by biologists, which gives us a a very good target. It's validated by lots of other kinds of science and other scientists, but we take a completely new approach to it. And so we ask if we can mimic the way a protein functions, can we then intervene and intervene in a way that you can't do with small molecules that aren't big enough or with antibodies that are, that can't get into inside cells. So the analogy that I use on, on the side of, if you want to imagine what it's like, what the problem might look like, in some of these protein diseases that are aggregation diseases, so these are proteins that should ordinarily be involved in things like cell division or some kind of metabolic process, they start sticking together instead of doing that. When they stick together, they make fibers. People may be aware of amyloid fibers and they've heard, of, heard things like that. Some of these are implicated in things like Huntington's, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Okay? Some of the, again, incurable and in the case of Alzheimer's, very large problems and, and ongoing and growing problems in human society the world over, because as we age, we see those diseases come. So if you imagine that as they start sticking, these proteins stick together, they can start sticking even more. So they one or two stick, and then suddenly they, they create a seed, and mm -hmm. that seed polymerizes hmm. into a large structure. And if you think of the interface between them, like two pieces of Velcro, one with hooks and one with loops, mm -hmm you've got many, many thousands of interactions between two pieces of Velcro. You imagine a small molecule drug trying to come in and undo one hook and one loop. Well, it, as soon as it diffuses away, they come back together. Sure. 
the way you rip apart Velcro is to pull on it with your hands and mechanically tear it apart. And that's a, that's, you apply a fair bit of force to do that sure. over long distances. Only a molecule of the same scale, huh. right? The yep. same size as the Velcro could do it. And so what we want to develop is, is materials, uh, in our case, a polymer type material that will get in between those proteins and break them up. And it, it does it by sort of mimicking those proteins, understanding a little bit about the interface. And it's kind of back to what you were saying before too, by understanding nature and kind of going after, uh, you know, back to that seminal discovery around DNA, just mimicking nature. Yeah. And you're doing it kind of in a very applied way, novel approach, again, using your your pioneering science to to move in that direction, we, which we is very exciting. Hope, we hope, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I think if, 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 I think there's two, one outcome of that being able to do that is a real therapeutic. And I think we have a real shot at that. The other one is that we would have sort of proven that idea out of, of, and maybe other people can pick up. And there are lots of moves towards macromolecular drugs, larger scale drugs to address these issues. And there's a number of different labs out there trying to go in this direction. So, you know, we might see that medicinal chemistry that we call it is quite different 10 years from now than it is today. And that, that should be the way it is, right? We should make progress. Very, very interesting and very inspiring, Nathan. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting-edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. As we kind of wind down the conversation, I might ask a couple of rapid fire questions if that's okay. And you can kind of give me your, your can quick, I say, quick, I don't know. Quick, <laughs> that's perfectly acceptable. Absolutely. Okay, okay. But um, balance, you know, it just seems as though you're everywhere and there's, I mean, there's only 24 hours in the day, but you're making it look like there's, there's 48. How do you do it? And is there a way to kind of, do what you're doing and be fully immersed in the, the science and your entrepreneurial pursuits and find a way to keep balance? That's a good question. I, I would jokingly say you don't uh, have balance, um, <laughs> but of course you do. I think I compartmentalize things pretty well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I'm totally focused on this thing and then I'm going to totally focus on the next thing. And my assistants and my students and other people who work with me would tell you that I mess that up sometimes. But yeah, lots of help managing that calendar. But I, I think compartmentalization. You know, I get a paper rejected in the morning that's got nothing to do with these projects. I can't let that influence, you know, how we might interview somebody for the company in the afternoon. That's yeah. going to be completely separate. Yeah. And I think as you get more into this, you realize how much that is. You, you just can manage these things for what they are. Very interesting. Yeah. What it brings to mind for me is, again, we've got obviously got different backgrounds, but we've kind of run a parallel track. Mm -hmm. And so I remember for me, the metaphor of almost the golf game, as I was thinking about meeting with various investors and road shows where you're going in meeting after meeting after meeting, and you had to compartmentalize. I mean, one meeting, you would tell the same story, you would get different 
questions and it didn't always go the way you wanted it to go. But it's almost like a golf game. You can't let that yeah, prior right. hole affect your ability to kind of par or birdie or eagle the, the next shot. And doing that for 18 holes and the endurance of all of that to some degree created, maybe maybe it created some some sense of, of balance, but certainly performance and the ability to kind of stay in the game. You know, yeah, for, maybe there's persistence, endurance. I think that's yeah, right. Yeah. And I think, I think the people who do it well, speaking of the golf thing, are maybe people who also really love doing it. I mean, I think you have to want to do all sure. those bits. Yeah. And I think, you know, that there are so many ways that we change gears, right? Because sure. you are having financial conversations or very hardcore science. And I'm also teaching, yep. which is a completely different interaction. Right. Yeah. And so you are changing gears, but I think you have to throw yourself into those And you things. thrive on that. You, you can so. tell. You thrive on that. Yeah. I like, you, I do you like You are it. an interface kind of guy. I mean, you are right, you're right in the center of the storm all the time, it seems to me. Maybe that's, but that's where the innovation happens. Just switching gears a little bit. So how did the pandemic affect the way that you work and the way that you think about future science? Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, the beginning, I think, like anybody, we thought, oh yeah, well, it's February or it's March or whatever it was when we got the last time we traveled and mm-hmm. did things. And I thought, oh yeah, by June, we'll be back. And right. I very much, you know, we adapted. We had to adapt a lot. We're in one of those people may not really realize it or I haven't, you don't normally think through it, but there are some jobs that can't be remote. As we know, you know, you can't drive an aircraft remotely yet. You know, you physically have to be there. There are certain types of things like that. And being in the labs, laboratory uh, type, you can't do that by Zoom. So we needed to figure out ways early on to get the lab moving and by, you know, changing how people can get access to the lab and seeing the lab as a real resource for us. And this is just at Northwestern, but it's overlapped now into, into what we do here at Grove too, in that, you know, it's sort of a precious resource that you would schedule uh, to get time in. And we went through that for quite some time. We could do a lot of things on Zoom meetings. And I was sort of sitting at home like everybody else because I didn't physically have to be there, but my graduate students, postdocs, other researchers were there doing it. And I think seeing it that way, and also I think it's made, they might not agree. I do think it's made me a little bit more understanding of um, of the issues around being in a really high pressure environment all the time and needing some way, right, some outlet. Because I think in the Zoom, Zoom, Zoom meetings that we were sort of tolerating, as as many of us did, I think some of the students, some some people who were just trying to get started were a bit lost in that. Sure. They, there was no physical right. sort of interaction. We weren't in the meetings together. You didn't see people's uh, nuanced reactions to things. And I think it created some distance. I think we're, we're building the teams back now yeah. by trying to reinstitute some of that. So I think, you know, I don't know if the world's changed completely forever. I, I think that for what we do, I think you need to be with people. You've got to be physically in the lab and you've got to, like we said, you've got to give talks, put yourself out there. Sure. I'm looking forward to getting on the road. I will say we used to go to a lot of conferences that maybe we don't have to go to. You traveled a lot. We traveled a lot. Yeah. Maybe we could have traveled a bit less. Mm-hmm. I think I can hear my mother saying, yeah, You can be true. more selective. You could be more selective yeah. maybe. But then try, ask me that in a year's time when- which ones do you turn down, right? So. Right. Well, so speaking of your mother, do you miss Australia? I do. I miss Australia a lot. Actually, they live in California, my parents. Okay, but we were okay. just talking about them going to Australia. And I, uh, somebody I met an Australian last week in a thing I was at. And uh, I, my wife asked her the same question. And, and we both said yes. And then she said, well, what about it? And we both said the food straight away. <laughs> but I very much do. And we haven't been able to go back. And that that's, again, to the COVID thing. I mean, 
Yeah. We've been stuck yep. for lots of reasons to do with Australia and, and obviously our, just our travel overall, but I miss it a lot, yeah. So what advice would you give to next generation faculty that are coming behind you with regards to your path, what you've learned, particularly as it relates to entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's a, it's a good, good question. So I have some students of mine and postdocs who've got their own labs and I've had the occasion to have that question. And there's the, we're still pretty early on and I'm pretty early on in my career, I'd like to think still. And so they're still assistant professors. I don't think any of them have had got gone up for tenure yet. And so the one or two times actually, and I had the same advice was, you're going to have other ideas. Don't start a company while you're an assistant professor. Mm -hmm. Focus on that. Focus on your students. Build the culture of that lab. Get it up and running. Make sure you can manage that because there's enough to manage already. Um, get tenure and, and think about what's going to happen next. But I think the best part of that, which was given to me, was you'll have other ideas. That's You're not just going to have one idea. Right. You know, definitely protect it, right? Make sure that it's it's uh, safe in case that is the idea. I think that's how but investors- I think take time. I think know? that's how investors think about interacting with faculty as well and innovators. There'll is be that other There's going to be more. It's a, there's a, an, an annuity, if you will, hmm, of, you know, a wellspring of not just the current idea, but future ideas as well. It isn't always the case, but oftentimes there can be this- uh, notion that you know there's a repeater academic founder. To, That's to interesting. Some I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. thought of the outside perspective. Yeah. We get a little bit of that from um, some of the programs sometimes, mm-hmm. the federal grant agencies and things yeah. like that, where you can see, you know, things cycling and off. You're being part of these big, a lot of grants now involve big team programs, right. which is which is fantastic. And those are other interactions we miss. But those collaborative efforts, you know, lead to new things all the time. And the, yeah, so I hadn't thought of it from the investor side too. Maybe we need to be better about communicating ideas in sort of other four. I know that there's some occasion to do that where you, you know, it's not a pitch. It's more of like a, hey, these are the kinds of problems we're trying to solve. Just ideas. But I think that's one of them. I think the other area is like we said at the top, I mean, go do the most creative, crazy thing you can get your graduate students to do. That's great advice. And you'll raise, you know, academics are writing grants continuously. That's a good exercise because it forces you to write the pitch. Yeah. So do that. It's a precursor. Right? Yeah, do that stuff and, and uh, yeah, go crazy. And, and I think the thick skin that you developed through that process will serve you well as you seek to try to market that idea, even if you're developing a company. Yeah, I think so. I think the the guy, the people looking at this question, and I think it is about failure and success. And that you asked about balance. I think it's about balancing those. And they've they've been graduate students, and they've been rejected, or they've right. And I think anybody who's you know building a uh, academic lab, even with one or two graduate students, is kind of like a starting starting a company. It's true. So academics have done it a little bit, yeah. nowhere near what's required, mm-hmm. but they've all kind of had a little some bit of familiarity. training, yeah. some familiarity, some yeah. familiarity at least with. Maybe budgeting, although many of us don't really budget. We just raise as much money as we can and spend it as fast as possible. But, but the, it's a different game, right? But I think, I think so, yeah. I think they've had that experience. And, you, and it's like, I think you're right. There's a thick skin part to it. But we all, you know, sometimes need 24 hours after a rejection to, oh, the, to you, come back. You can't help but take it personally, right? Yeah. That's I mean, it. developing yeah. a thick skin is maybe easier to do when you're looking at rejection in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Um, when you're living it, it still stings. It hurts, no <laughs> matter right. how thick the, the skin is. Well, like you said earlier about starting the company, I actually had a, uh, this is just at the very, I know we're at the end, but I just was thinking back to what you were asking about that. We had a major rejection right before we formed the company. Hmm. 
and I had, and it was, it was interesting. It was a, a fairly large federal program, federal grant program. And it was one of these, you got to interview in front of colleagues and people who'd started businesses, but all kinds of innovators. And it was, it was an actual, it's a research grant, basic research grant. But they said, look, we think this idea is far enough along. You don't need our money. You should go start a business. And I, of course, said, no, 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 no. I need your money. <laughs> and, and, you know, that was pretty hard. But yeah. we went and started a business. So yeah. there was Look a moment. Look what came out of that. Yeah. There was a moment. I'm not going to yeah. say they, they made me do it, but definitely there was a seed, right? I think it's, there's a lot of seeds planted over the years. And yeah. maybe that's one way. Well, and you're just getting started, Nathan. I'm really proud of you. I'm so honored to have you in here as a guest today. Honored I really look forward to seeing what comes out of Grove. Uh, have great confidence in the great science that's going into it and a great belief that the impact that we'll be seeing coming out of Grove will be uh, extraordinary. And obviously, you know, your follow-on discoveries that you're working on in your lab in the academic setting uh, will have great impact for years to come. And so thank you so much for taking time with us today and inspiring all of us. Thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here and, and with you today as well. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Goodbye.